Minutes, the podcast on the events, ideas and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Ulrike Franke, I'm a Policy Fellow at ECFR and I'm here today with Mark Leonard, ECFR's Director, to discuss this morning's State of the Union speech by Jean-Claude Juncker and the future of the European Union in general. But first of all, welcome back to our regular World in 30 Minutes podcast. Over the summer, we had our mini-series mini about the end of the world as we know it, the end of the liberal world order, and we had loads of interesting discussions. Um, and in fact, there are three more to come, one with Martin Wolf, one with Kelly Greenhill, and one with Joseph Nye, which we will continue publishing on this feed. But as all of Europe is coming back from summer holidays, so are we, and we are now here to restart our regular coverage. So let's talk about Jean-Claude Juncker's State of the Union today. Um, for those listeners that are not familiar with the intricacies of the European Union, once a year, the President of the European Commission does a speech called State of the Union to lay out his priorities and plans for the next year. And today's speech was most likely Juncker's last important State of the Union. Um, his next and final one is likely to be a call to arms for his successor rather than a whole new plan. And most importantly, Juncker had announced he would lay out his scenario for the future of the EU. Um, you may recall that earlier this year, the EU published a white paper laying out five possible scenarios for the future of the European Union. And now it was Juncker's turn to talk about his sixth scenario. So maybe, Mark, let's start with this. Um, how did you like Juncker's sixth vision? And can you maybe summarize it for those that couldn't spare an hour listening to Juncker's trilingual speech? Well, the whole speech is based on a bit of a fiction, because obviously Juncker's not a real president, and he gives it to European Parliament, which isn't a real parliament in the sense of passing legislation like national parliaments. And his attempt in the speech today was to try and come up with a vision which would somehow appeal to all of the decision makers who are presidents and prime ministers in the different member states who've not been very united uh, in recent times and uh, to come up with ideas which might have some hope of getting through those national parliaments which would have to uh, back them if they are to become a, a reality. His topic was the, the wind is back in Europe's sails and he was talking about the idea of a European renaissance. And it is totally true that the world looks fundamentally different from how it looked when he gave his speech in 2016. Mm. The question then was, will the European Union survive? There were all sorts of fears of disintegration and there were eight elections that people were kind of terrified about um, going forward in Austria, in the Netherlands, in France. Um, and now, because of the election of uh, more moderate candidates in all of those different places, there is a, a sense of excitement coming out of uh, Paris, out of Berlin. And Juncker wanted to get in on the action <laughs> and make sure that this is not just an intergovernmental thing, which is led by uh, France and Germany, but that there is a sort of role for the European Commission. So he set out. Uh, a set of ideas, many of which uh, are kind of familiar and echo discussions which have been coming from, from other member states. He talked about uh, the uh, importance of uh, uh, 
the reform of the Eurozone and, and what to, to, to do about that going forwards. But um, he laid out a very clear position on that. The French approach has been to call for a Eurozone budget, a Eurozone parliament and a Eurozone finance minister. And Juncker um, talked about uh, having things for the whole of Europe rather than a multi-speed Europe. So he wants not to have a separate Eurozone budget, not to have a separate Eurozone parliament, but to rely on the existing European parliament and not to have a Eurozone finance minister, but rather the one for the EU27. This is partly about preserving his own power, because anything which is done for the Eurozone would be outside of the official institutions and would uh, be subject to different ways of running things, which is one of the reasons why they're attractive for people in Germany and, and France who are slightly frustrated with the way that the European Commission works. He also talked about creating a European monetary fund, again, a European monetary fund rather than a Eurozone monetary fund, by turning the ESM, which is um, the uh, body that was set up during the euro crisis to, to help uh, bail out uh, banks and, uh, well, through uh, national parliaments, uh, sorry, na through national budgets, um, into, a, into a European monetary fund. That's a, an idea that the Germans have been very uh, keen on. Um, he, the other elements of his speech were, were to do with the idea of creating a Europe, an Europe qui protège, in, in the phrase of uh, Emmanuel Macron, a Europe that can defend its citizens. And again, he sort of echoed a lot of the things that we already know uh, on the cards for that, a defence union, thinking about... Um, how to screen foreign direct investments into, into Europe, which is something which Emmanuel Macron has been pushing for, a cyber security agency, uh, a European intelligence unit, which could uh, bring together different counter-terrorism efforts, um, blue cards for legal migration into the EU. And the, the kind of final set of issues were to do with how the EU's run. And there, there were some sort of visionary ideas, which probably never happen, like combining his job with the job of, uh, of Donald Tusk and having a, a single uh, European president, one captain to sail the ship, as he said. Yeah, there were lots of naval references in the speech. It was quite, quite funny. And then also streamlining decision-making. So in some of the areas where there is uh, decision-making by unanimity to move towards qualified majorities uh, within the existing treaties. And he ended by talking about the Emmanuel Macron idea of, um, of having a kind of democratic convention and, and getting lots of people around Europe to tell European citizens, uh, European leaders what kind of Europe they want so that you have a Europe made from the bottom up rather than the top down. But if you add all that together, it's not entirely clear uh, what it is in terms of the, the different scenarios. Uh, you, yeah. can, you can remind us what the other five scenarios were. <laughs> yeah, so, um, well, first of all, I thought it was quite interesting that you didn't mention the values because uh, Juncker was very, um, very much underlined European values. He said the EU is more than money and the euro, and he framed his whole vision along three values, freedom, equality, and the rule of law. But you immediately jump to the actual proposals he made, which uh, may, be, may be quite a, um, maybe the right way to frame it. I think um, it's an interesting tension, because on the one hand, he is basically championing the idea of a, of a united Europe of 27. Uh, 27 is the new obviously. number <laughs> with Brexit uh, on, the, on the cards. 
Um, so he tried to align himself with people who are worried about Franco-German leadership and the kind of fears of, of a smaller core Europe being developed around them or around the Eurozone. Mm. But at the same time, he piled in to uh, Macron's war against Poland uh, by talking about values. And he did it in, in German as well, I think, mm. which um, showed that uh, he wants to be on the, the sort of Macron-Merkel track of, uh, of holding uh, recalcitrant governments such as Orbán's uh, government in Hungary and uh, Kaczynski's uh, in um, Poland to account over some of the, the threats to the rule of law in, the, in their countries. And it's something which uh, the, the Vice President of the Commission, Franz Timmermans, has been very active on. And is going to be a live debate as we go forward mm. to think about the next EU budget, because people are talking about whether um, the access to the budget should be made conditional on uh, being in line with those values. And with the UK leaving the EU, there will be a big hole in the EU budget anyway. And um, some people see this as an opportunity to put pressure on, on Poland and Hungary because I think 4% of the Hungarian or Polish investment comes from the, from the um, well, maybe it's their GDP. I need to check the figures. But anyway, a large amount of money goes to these, uh, these different countries. And that's also one of the reasons why people in France uh, have been talking about a Eurozone budget because that would be something that excluded Hungary and Poland because they're not in the Eurozone. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because neither Hungary or Poland were actually mentioned in the speech, but I also very much read his emphasis on the rule of law as, as being directed towards these countries in particular. And um, we mentioned the, the five scenarios um, lay, laid out in the white paper. Um, and I actually wanted to ask you whether you really think that his six scenarios is so different from them. Because the five scenarios we had in uh, March of this year when the white paper was published was first carrying on, uh, second reducing the EU to nothing but the single market, um, third the kind of multi-speed uh, those who want to do more can do more uh, option, fourth doing less more efficiently and then fifth doing much more together the more federalist uh, unionist point of view. And when I listened to Juncker's speech it kind of sounded like a combination of one and five so carrying on but doing much more together. Do you disagree? It's true that one plus five is six but I think there's a, <laughs> there's a bit of three in there as well. I mean some of the idea is is also about allowing people who want to do more to do it amongst themselves certainly on defense that's one of the the areas the defense union is something where there's permanent structured cooperation but don't is... you think that in in tone in general it was it was a pretty federalist um uh, point of view well you know everybody where you stand depends on where you sit and if you sit in the seat of the president of the european commission you tend to be in favor of things which strengthen the institutions in in brussels so um that's why it's more conventional maybe than some of the, the speeches uh, and ideas that have been floating around in France and Germany where there's a mix of, of more uh, sort of Brussels-led uh, integration and things which are done in a more flexible way mm. between member states. And um, Juncker you know, is obviously a champion of, um, of, of European integration. In fact, he, he made a big deal about his love for Europe in, yeah. in the speech and how, like how unhappy he was when Europe was doing badly, how, how personally he takes these things. 
Yeah, right. I wanted to move on to um, your vision soon, but maybe before we do this, um, was there anything surprising for you in the speech? And also, was there anything you were disappointed about? Anything you thought, you know, wasn't worked out sufficiently or should have been mentioned differently? Well, right. Mark, Mark, <laughs> Mark didn't find anything surprising or disappointing. Personally, um, if, if you would ask me, I thought that the um, uh, his points about the whole digital uh, future of Europe was somewhat disappointing simply because it was very defensive and it was all about protecting European citizens from the digital world, cyber attacks, all of that, which of course, you know, is important, but I thought it was quite defensive um, from what basically the leader of a, a, the most important economic market um, in the world that seemed to see the digital world as more of a threat than, than an opportunity. So I thought that that was slightly disappointing, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing, I wouldn't say it was disappointing because I had low expectations of this speech, but was but the whole dis discussion about migration and where that's leading is obviously one of the elements of the existential crisis that mm -hmm. Europe has been going through in recent times. And the combination of thinking about what to do about refugees, um, about legal migrants from uh, poorer countries, but also uh, the free movement of labour within the European Union. Those issues are still pretty toxic and are very, very important. Uh, and even though they're not playing the role that some people thought they might in the German elections, because the Balkan route has been closed and, and the Turkey deal seems to be holding up, they are going to, to return in, in different ways. And certainly if you talk to any Italians, these problems yeah. have not gone away. And that there wasn't very much in the speech. But I think that's more a reflection of the fact that the EU is, is very divided on these issues and that when Juncker tried to take leadership in these areas by suggesting um, that, you know, quotas for reallocating uh, refugees between different countries it actually ended up being totally counterproductive and uh, setting the cause back rather dramatically and creating a real anti-European feeling in, in, in many member states. Mm. So maybe that's a useful lesson learned. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. I mean, I think his exact words were um, we should keep migration on the radar, which I thought was a bit of an um, underemphasis. Uh, yeah. Um, he also he also was very positive towards Italy. He said uh, Italy was saving Europe's honor um, by by taking on so many many refugees and kind of dealing with migration at their borders. So he he really tried to to underline. Um, I'm sure, the Italians are very grateful for this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, right. Maybe the last point on the speech itself. Um, what did you make of his uh, very very short Brexit reference? Well, it was interesting because in the official speech, it said that Brexit, I think I'm getting the, his words right here, was uh, a, a, a tragedy. Mm -hmm. which, uh, that he will, regretted. We will always regret. But in the actual delivered lines, he said, and I think um, you will as well to the, to the UK, which caused uh, some amusement in the audience. And in many ways, from a narrow Juncker perspective, it's not necessarily clear that the Brexit vote was a, a very sad and tragic moment. In many ways, 
one of the things which has given Europe wind back in its sails and led to this European revival is the aftershocks of the Brexit vote and mm. Trump's election. And it's a, a real paradox that it was the near-death experience which European leaders and publics felt about the European project, which I think is one of the things which has caused people to rethink what they're doing and has also led both to a, a new uh, sense of... Uh, optimism amongst many different European uh, governments, but also uh, uh, gives them something to unite around. And the EU has been remarkably united about how it deals with Brexit. And it's been particularly great for the European Commission because they've been handling the discussion. So this is a, a rare example of the Commission taking back control from the member states and being put in a position where it can handle something. And that's where they're very happy. And the fact that the Commission is the only body that can do this because the, they see this as, as like enlargement in reverse, means that they are going to be uh, empowered for, for a while yet. And the way they've structured the decision-making on, on Brexit and the negotiations was a very clever way of maintaining that unity by putting these three issues of the rights of European citizens, Northern Ireland, and above all, the budget and British contributions first as the things which need to be decided before anything else gets decided. They've managed to ensure European unity for, for longer than many people expected. Mm. Right, okay. So to summarise, we have a positive vision of European values. Um, we have Juncker taking on some of the proposals by Emmanuel Macron, although not all. And it was interesting that the French media, so the, the few headlines I saw were basically, um, I think it was Le Monde that said, you know, Juncker not as ambitious as Macron, so they definitely picked up on that. Um, the German media reaction I thought was quite funny because every single headline I saw immediately after the speech was all about how Juncker said that every country should eventually or more or less immediately adopt the euro. And I think the, the, the French, the, sorry, the German media wasn't necessarily convinced that that would be such a good idea. Um, so that was the, the immediate reaction here in Berlin. But um, right, so if Juncker doesn't have really a brand new vision for the future of the EU, which maybe may not you know, be expected. Um, let's talk about your vision of Europe, Mark. Uh, you have a new paper out uh, that is called L'Europe qui protège, conceiving the next European Union. So why don't you tell us a bit about what the next European Union, L'Europe qui protège, is going to look like? So my paper is really an attempt to take a step back from some of these more technical discussions about individual proposals and to think about how we can use this new sense of hope, which is in, in Europe's chancelleries. And I think that the worst thing that could happen is that the European political leadership, including the European Commission in Brussels, um, gives a kind of collective sigh of relief and says, phew, um, Le Pen didn't win in France, we can just carry on as we have been in recent times, you know, make a few nice speeches about Le Hoc qui protège, and uh, but but basically not fundamentally change anything in, in the European project, because I think that there are both kind of enormous changes which have been going on domestically within Europe. And I think the Brexit vote was a product of uh, very, very profound structural changes to our politics, a combination of economic uncertainty, cultural anxiety, political alienation, which are true not just in Britain, but in many other countries and which need a response. 
and where Europe has become part of the problem rather than part of the solution to people's mm. fears. But also, maybe even more fundamentally, a very, very different global environment where rather than us being able to run the 21st century, as I, as I kind of hoped <laughs> uh, 10 years ago, by uh, exporting our values and our ways of doing things to other countries, we are uh, feeling increasingly in danger of being reshaped by forces that are outside of our, our control, which are leading to greater sense of anxiety amongst European countries. So my paper is basically an attempt to think about what is a vision that could take what's so precious and so exciting about the European project so far, but to reinvent it so that it's both able to rethink its role in the world stage and uh, to defend the kind of uh, global uh, liberal order which Europeans have, have come to rely on. And but how do we make defending exciting? Because you talk about an exciting vision, but it is, you know, Europe that defends what it has achieved. Is that is that not somewhat unambitious? Well, I think that that's true. But the, the feeling which you have in, you know, defending something uh, um, which is very precious and which is very valuable and which is being attacked uh, in quite a concerted way from different areas. It's already something. <laughs> can be quite ambitious, you know, the Battle of Britain. <laughs> oh, we're going there. Or, or other kind of fights have been... Uh, but so, I mean, but anyway, the second thing I, I was trying to think about is how you get a new relationship between Europe and its citizens and between the member states, which is sort of mm -hmm. broken down. And I think those two things need to come together. Um, so th those are the sort of two elements of it, and maybe if we start with the with the with the kind of external thing um, dimension, um, basically uh, what we are finding is that you have not just Donald Trump in the White House who is questioning a lot of the fundamentals of the liberal international order, but you have. Uh, Vladimir Putin in Moscow, Xi Jinping in China, President Erdogan in Turkey, um, Modi in India. So you have a, a lot of the most powerful leaders in the world seem to be strong men who uh, are not particularly committed to, to liberal values. And a lot of those kind of institutions are, are being broken down. So people are talking about the end of the world. In fact, that was the topic of our podcast mini-series on, on the world in 30 minutes. And I think that one way of, of thinking about that in a kind of maybe slightly more subtle way is to draw a distinction between the global liberal order uh, 1.0, which is the sort of American project of creating a set of institutions and, and security frameworks after the Second World War, which uh, were largely about protecting the sovereignty of different countries. And then the kind of thicker, more European project, which started after the end of the Cold War, which was about reinventing the meaning of sovereignty and pooling sovereignty and focusing on the rights of individuals rather than um, uh, just the rights of states. And it's that project which uh, first came under attack. So we saw two decades where there were more and more institutions like that which were being created, the World Trade Organization, the International Criminal Court, the Kyoto Protocol. 
And that basically came under heavy attack when China and Russia and other countries who were more sovereignist became more kind of um, uh, vocal. And they were pushing back on things like the responsibility to protect and, and other areas. More recently, there's been a pushback even on the uh, Liberal Order 1.0, mm. which is um, uh, very worrying with people intervening in, in uh, different conflicts, not to defend the rights of individuals, but just in more kind of traditional ways. And Donald Trump has raised big questions about some of those institutions like, like NATO. And I think for, and there's also been a kind of domestic pressure against them, you know, both in populist movements uh, like Mahin Le Pen and UKIP in the UK, but also some of the governments in the European Union, like Poland and Hungary that we were mentioning before. So I think that the way that um, the EU needs to adapt its thinking is to, to stop hoping that we're going to have a global liberal order 2.0, which carries on uh, its great march of the two decades after the end of the Cold War, because there's so much opposition to that. Um, so we should be trying to strengthen the, the 1.0 institutions and develop different kinds of relationships um, with China, with other countries in a tactical way to kind of uphold the Paris climate deal, the um, WTO, other kinds of things uh, in that space. But make the defence of Liberal Order 2.0 within the European Union into the kind of ultimate thing that we're doing. And that's what an Europe qui protège should mean, is actually mm -hmm. creating this Kantian fortress in a Hobbesian world and thinking about how you can stop that being undermined by attacks from the outside, but also what kind of uh, mechanisms you can have to decontaminate the attacks on the Liberal Order 2.0 within the EU. And that does mean finding new ways of dealing with Poland and Hungary and, and countries which are, which are kind of raising questions about those things. But it also means rethinking a lot of our foreign policies because our foreign policies, when we were in our imperial expansionist phase, was all about enlarging and transforming our neighbours. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, now that it's clear that Turkey's not going to join the European Union anytime soon, it's unlikely that the Western Balkans are going to join in the which, near future. Which were mentioned by Juncker, actually, but, uh, yeah. Ukraine, uh, Georgia, Moldova, those countries are not going to join, certainly Syria, etc. So we need to think about how you have different foreign policies towards all of these different areas so that's one kind of uh, set of areas and then the, the other questions are to do with the the internal relationships which mm -hmm. the EU both has with its citizens and between the different member states and I could talk more about that if you'd like uh, please say so externally <laughs> we've got a Kantian fortress in a Hobbesian world yeah. do you have anything as catchy for the internal uh, um, ex um, relationship as well? well I think in terms of the relationship between the EU and its citizens The big change that we have to do is to realize that the, the first few decades of the EU were based about ripping down borders between uh, countries and between people and creating interdependence because we thought that interdependence stopped war. And we were incredibly successful creating the single market, Schengen, the Euro, um, and Uh, we probably did stop war. But what we didn't do was stop conflict between countries and anxiety. And the interesting thing about Europe today is that almost all of the things that the Eurosceptics are attacking are not the things which don't work about the European Union. In the old days, they would talk a lot about the democratic deficit, or about fraud in the structural funds. Um, 
the things which Mahim Le Pen and UKIP and other people attack now are, are, are the things that work the best. It's mm-hmm. the, the euro. The things we're most proud of. Yeah, exactly. It's the euro. It's free movement of people. Um, it's free movement of labours. It's Schengen. And, and the reason for that is because they realise that interdependence both has an upside and a downside. And a lot of the fears which people have come about from interdependence. So there's fears of financial contagion, both in debtor countries and creditor countries who are kind of worried about what's going on. There's worries about uh, the social effects of large migratory flows. So there's big debate about posted workers, which is um, which Macron launched about making sure that Polish workers couldn't come and work in, in, um, uh, in, in, in France for long periods of time for agencies and undercut the, the wages of, of French workers. Um, but also uh, of terrorists going across borders, international criminals. Um, and what is very clear is that the more we bind people together, the more uh, identity politics uh, mm. becomes the defining feature of our domestic politics and the more kind of scared people are about these different things. So the next phase of European integration should less be about creating more interdependence and more about making interdependence safe. And the way to do that is to think about who are the losers, how do you help them out, whether it's economic losers and thinking about ways of, of mitigating the effects of free trade, of free movement. And, and I think things like this posted workers directive could be very good symbolic ways of actually showing that interdependence can be made safe, as well as the security questions to do with terrorism, intelligence sharing um, and, and other kinds of things. And I think that the... the uh, way that we think about European integration has to kind of change fundamentally for that. I think that's a sort of fundamental problem between Europe and its citizens. But one of the reasons why it's very difficult to deal with is because there's also a breakdown of solidarity between the member states. Mm. And the question of Euroscepticism has become very zero-sum. So the solution to the things that people hate about European one country can actually... Uh, create massive problems in another country. So, for example, in southern European countries where they hate austerity, the solution is to have more flexibility and to socialise debt, which is what fuels Euroscepticism in countries like Germany and Finland and, uh, and other countries. And the same is true when it comes to dealing with refugees. You know, um, solving the German or the Italian problem creates a problem in Hungary or Poland. Exactly. It increasingly seems as if the problem isn't so much lack of solidarity, but a disagreement on what issues you should be um, uh, solidarity about. I mean, countries have been have been um, identifying this quite differently. So I think that's the, the biggest challenge for the, for the EU, in a way, is, is coming up with a new grand bargain where every single country can see its national needs being delivered by the European Union. And that's one of the areas which which Juncker was kind of struggling the most at in his speech and why some of the areas did feel a little bit uh, like they were purely rhetorical, like the language on on migration, which we were talking about earlier, because they weren't set in a framework where you did have that sort of grand bargain. But I think that's maybe something which is above his pay grade and maybe something which which Macron and Merkel uh, could work on together. Excellent. All right, so we've got the Kantian Fortress and a Hobbesian world for the external relationships, and I think we've got making interdependence safe for the internal. That's nice, catchy, catchy phrases to remember. 
Okay, I think we're coming to an end. Um, I don't think we have a bookshelf segment, but we will, of course, put the paper, L'Europe qui protège, a link to the paper, um, on our website. And I think we should also put a link to Mark's book on why Europe will run the 21st century as a kind of counterfactual. Um, and we're going to put a link uh, to this one as well on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. Um, we also would like you to ask to write reviews, ideally positive, about this podcast on SoundCloud or uh, Apple or iTunes, um, whatever you use. Um, I think there may even be a few more exciting end of the world mugs left, um, as far as I know. So uh, if, if you write us a review, you may get one of those fancy mugs. But for now, it's goodbye from Mark Leonard and myself, Ulrike Franke. The editor of our podcast is Pauline Wilbin.